Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Welcome to the next big trade and thanks for joining us. Um, this week I'm talking to Seamus Murphy, uh, founder of Carrick Hill, an independent research boutique focused on the financial sector in Europe. Uh, UK and select emerging markets, including Brazil and Mexico, some of my favourite emerging markets, as it happens. Um, Seamus, uh, how are you doing? I'm excellent, uh, even though the weather isn't great in Dublin right now. So. I wouldn't worry, mate. I'm in Boston. It's been pissing down the whole summer. It's, it's <laughs> astonishing. It's like a tropical rainforest. Yes. Um, so, Seamus, can you improve on my crap introduction? Can you tell us more about uh, Carrick Hill? Well, I, I suppose I used to. I've been working in with financials for nearly twenty-five years, and uh, I suppose I was lucky enough to have worked through the the two thousand Nasdaq bubble, the GFC, and I suppose after the GFC, I suppose it became very obvious that um, a lot of we were a research firm or worked for a research firm, and uh, but they were very focused basically on just a, a lot of the micro about the companies without miss would and missed basically the bigger picture as we would call it in terms of the factors that kind of um, influence the environment in which companies operate. So that's what we, we try to do here is just have an exceptionally deep understanding of the data and what influences um, the environment in which financials operate. So obviously for financials, for example, interest rates are obviously a key component. Um, you know, the expected evolution of, you know, cost of credit, cost of risk, all these kind of factors. And then obviously we didn't individually, we kind of mirror that with the individual companies where we speak with the companies and they either verify or refute our thoughts. Um, but I suppose a lot of firms as well focus a lot on the very um, short-term data. We try to be quite long-term in our thought process to take it back through cycles, um, which helps us, um, which helps us try to understand. But then more recently, we've obviously been doing the shorter term data. It's kind of, so it's, um, it's kind of a bit of a unique approach in the context of how we think about financials. Yeah, I read, you You were kind enough to send me a lot of material to take a look at, and I found it fascinating. I thought, I think this is going to be quite a, a stimulating discussion. Um, probably, let, let's, why waste time with me blurring on? Let's let's go into the the your next big trade. What, what should people be focused on? Well, I suppose the big thing for us, or there's two big things. One is, we've obviously had a period of exceptionally low interest rates for... Um, well over well let's call it a decade in europe and globally and during that period we've had you know a kind of dysfunction i, I suppose uh, come into play across the financial markets um especially within the individual sectors within financial so you know a couple of things are important for us we think we're entering a period of higher rates for longer um we don't think we're finished the cycle is over yet um there's a couple of key reasons for that um, and then, so European banks for us still look exceptionally interesting. They have been, you know, a, a terrible trade investor or inverted commas are a terrible investment for well over a decade. Uh, but European banks, in our opinion, are still very interesting. I think the narrative has changed in Europe. The political narrative has changed in Europe. The economic narrative has changed in Europe. Um, and also the consequence, the byproduct of that is that we're now entering, we think, an exceptionally difficult period for private equity asset management. Um, and a more difficult period for household savings. Um, but this, these, all these things take time to play out. Um, and, um, you know, I suppose, if, if you don't mind, Harry, like, even if we think about what's happening today, you know what I mean? You know, 
obviously everybody has been trying to call peak interest rates in Europe and in the US for quite a while. Our view for kind of six to nine months is that like even if money supply is falling, it's actually you're kind of missing the picture and to some extent because the productivity of debt has been picking up for you know sequentially quarter and quarter for the last five to six quarters and therefore the velocity of money has actually been picking up and so therefore when you look at real gdp expectations we're still not in recession territory anywhere near it um and so therefore i think the question is we have to kind of ask ourselves when we think about financials in the broader sense in in europe and uk and in these emerging markets is you know why monetary policy has been completely ineffective today because i, I think if we sat here harry this time last year and we are I think anybody would have said, and we, we expected US rates to be where they are, European rates to be at four and, you know, no issues, UK rates to be, people talking peak rates in the UK now six. Um, I think most people would have said, you know, equity markets would have been at substantially lower and, you know, we would be, uh, have a very difficult backdrop for banks, cost of risk for banks would be through the roof. And I suppose it's important to understand why, why that hasn't happened so far. Totally agree. It, for me, it's the question. I've got a working hypothesis, but I'm very curious about your thinking on this. Yeah. So what I, is the mechanism? And I suppose, look, for us, for us, in terms of how we think about the data, um, I don't know if Gabrielle can put up the data just in terms of the household net worth growth between 19 and 21. Um, there's, there's kind of five key reasons, basically, in terms of why we haven't had, on monetary policy has been relatively ineffective to date, let's call it that. Um, the first one was we had excessive wealth creation during the pandemic. Um, you know, if you look at the US, you know, normally in the US, you get kind of, you know, wealth grows at nominal GDP plus a little, um, which is, you know, seven to eight percent. But during the two period, between the period 19 to 21, we had over 100 percent growth. And, and uh, as a share of GDP, basically, um, sorry, 107% growth in over two years, which is really excessive. We had, like, obviously Europe is slightly lower because we just have less financial wealth, but nonetheless, we still had excessive wealth creation in these countries. Um, the other thing that happened, obviously, then when we move forward is that we just had an exceptionally strong period of household cash flow generation. Um, you know, gross savings rose really, really substantially. Um, but I suppose this is due to the fiscal intervention of the of the of the of the governments. Um, but also, it wasn't only related to the fact that the governments intervened on the fiscal side in terms of supporting jobs and paying people actual money, but they also intervened in in guaranteeing loans. And I think that's really important because so therefore we had a very fluid system where everything was guaranteed. I mean, we were speaking with a local. Italian bank recently, and we think some, they were telling us something like 30% of their loan book is still guaranteed by the state on the corporate side, um, which is pretty astonishing. And so therefore we still have that adjustment back to normality to come or is still ongoing basically in, in, in these regions. And I suppose what a lot of people are saying when we read them, the typical narrative is that, you know, this adjustment has already happened. This already has already happened. But what's actually equally as important, Harry, is that what makes it more complicated now is that the adjustment that has happened isn't as actually as simple as one thinks because what we try to do here is we dissect basically consumption into what we call essential and discretionary items and one of the characteristics of this cycle and the third reason why it's different this cycle is that um, discretion what we call discretionary spending power is actually going up um, sequentially month on month in most regions and why is that happening I mean, you have exceptionally strong wage growth in most regions, um, 
but then you have essentialized in inflation now negative. So therefore, if you have wage growth in, for example, we, we look at Belgium, you know, where you have, you know, if, if Gabrielle could put up the chart on Belgium employee compensation, you'll see uh, Belgium compensation growing at nine and five in 23 and 24. But on the following graph, you'll see that, you know, um, essential item inflation basically in some regions, for example, we pick out Spain, but it's happening everywhere, is falling. And so therefore, when you look at Germany, if you look at household discretionary spending power, which is an earlier graph, you'll see that that's actually sequentially rising time on time. And what does that mean? What does that, what, what does that actually mean? What that means basically is that if discretionary spending, our spending power is growing, is growing, it means that people have more money to spend, not less money to spend. And so therefore the central banks have to eliminate that excess demand or have to fight harder to eliminate that excess demand. So if, if Gabrielle can put up the chart of Germany, for example, which is um, of discretionary spending power in Germany, um, household discretionary spending power, you'll see that that is sequentially still rising year on year. Um, the most recent data point, for example, in, in to May, shows that discretionary spending power in real terms up 15% in Belgium, you know, 5% in the Netherlands, 8% in Ireland, Germany at seven. I mean, these are astonishing numbers. And so therefore the demand still exists in the economy and central banks are now going to have to fight even harder to eliminate that demand. So that's kind of, three, sorry, Harry, go ahead. I was just going to say that's that's driven. Is it entirely real wages driving that increase in disposable incomes, or are there other factors as well? Well, I suppose you do get the, you get the wage growth basically in terms of let's call it let's deal in nominal terms to start. You have wages mm -hmm. obviously growing in nominal terms. Yeah. And if we if we think about what is an essential item basically, so what we do we don't we it's not like we ignore core CPI. And what we did is we basically took uh, there's a data set in in that's common across all the euro area in the uk we took the 120 items in that data set and basically put it into you know essential or non-essential items um you know essential items of your food travel you know travel to work all these kind of things i mean like for example a service for your car an essential item but the purchase of the car is a, is a discretionary item and we can match that to the cpi month on month and what it showed us basically is that so last year when we were looking at the numbers there in the middle of last year we were expecting basically the fact that because essential items are rising so quickly, we were expecting discretionary spending to fall. And does you know, there's a lot of payment companies in Europe, a lot of discretionary companies in Europe, a lot of clothing companies in Europe where, you know, where we expected profit warnings from some of these firms, and, but it just wasn't happening. And so what the companies were telling us was that things were exceptionally still, were exceptionally good. All the banks telling us there's no issues and cost of risk. And we were saying, oh my God, what really is going on here? And then when you when we dug into the data, we started developing this household discretionary spending power index. And we when we looked at it across all of Europe, it became very obvious that nominal wages are growing quite quickly, and essential item inflation was growing, but not as quickly as wages. And so therefore discretionary spending power was actually increasing. And what's happening now is the ECB has raised into this, the Bank of England has raised into this, but what the most complicated thing for these guys now is the fact that you still have this wage growth expectations, which is a lag effect because it's an averaging effect um, into an environment where essential items are now negative in most in some European countries are falling really, really aggressively. And so therefore you do have this excess demand that still persists. 
But the problem with excess demand, it's not a supply side issue anymore in one sense in terms of the rate curve because supply chain indexes, all the all the indices are basically telling us that we're back close to normality. Yeah. It really is just a demand issue. Um, and so we do have to equalize this demand. The other thing, Harry, just moving off that for a second, is the other really important thing to understand um, is that we also entered into 2023 in a very different period are different, very different uh, kind of era relative to prior cycles. So uh, if if uh, if if Gabrielle wouldn't mind just putting up the chart of of the coverage ratio on let's suppose corporate coverage ratios in Germany, um, and what, what what's basically I suppose what what it is is we we become increasingly insensitive in some senses, Harry, to um, to uh, interest paid. Um, and so if you think back, this is a chart going back for 20 years. Um, this is just Germany, but this is, this is similar across most of Europe, um, whereby if you think about coming into the last recession, basically back in 2008, the German interest coverage ratio, corporate interest coverage ratio was running kind of eight to nine. It fell, you know, 10, 15, 20% percentage, you know, points or two to three percentage points during the, during the GFC. Um, but since the GFC, since we've had exceptionally loose policy, interest paid, interest paid by the corporate sector in Germany has fallen, you know, significantly. Profits have increased rapidly or EBITDA has increased rapidly to such an extent, especially, and you see the move, and especially as was the last move, the big move happened. Liquidity surged, rates fell. And so in Q1 2022, we had a coverage ratio of interest of 29 times in Germany. Um, you know, you see something similar on the household on the household side, um, which um, I don't know if Gabrielle as well. And we just use Germany as something. It's a similar, a similar, um, a similar. This, this is the HDSP to interest paid chart, Gabrielle, if you don't mind. Um, you'll see a similar evolution, basically, where. You see that the interest coverage ratio has gone from kind of like in the prior cycle 10 times up to about 25 times discretionary spending or available discretionary spending. And so therefore we come into a period where consumers and corporates were basically completely insensitive or relatively insensitive to the next rate move because interest is such a low component of their EBITDA or their, uh, or their disposable income. And what was the mechanism that achieved that? Is that because fiscal policy was so accommodative that you have a flow of funds type shift, based, allowing companies to pay down huge amounts of debt? It's not like well, rates I, have collapsed. No, I, well, I suppose the well, I suppose really, if you like, we think it's quite quite unusual. So, for example, the household interest bill in Spain in two thousand and eight, uh, when you think about it, was roughly around I think around fifty four billion. In 2022, this is the amount of interest paid by households alone. It, by, it, by 2022, that had fallen to 15. So the rate charge and the debt basically had moved from about 6.4% or right. about 6% back in 2007, 2008 to basically around 1.5% in Q1 2022. Um, and over that time, incomes grew. Number of people employed grew, incomes grew, discretionary spending power grew. Um, and so therefore we have had, you know, this rise in the interest coverage ratio. So, I mean, if interest bill, if the interest bill is basically, you know, one, three percent of your EBITDA, um, you know, you're going to be relatively insensitive. Sure. Even if rate, even if rates double 
um, then you become it becomes relatively insensitive. So so when you put all those things together, and you kind of say, look, why why are rates why are rates still we've been very very you know bear bearish on rates. I we think rates have been have had a lot of work to do on the upside for the last six to nine months, which is one of the reasons why we've been exceptionally bullish on European banks. Um, and if you put those reasons together, you know the excess, the fall in essential item inflation, growing wages, high levels of discretionary spending power that still exists in the economy, high levels of interest coverage, or insensitive insensitive to interest rates, basically because of high coverage ratios in the household and the corporate sector, um, then you begin to form a picture of why rates have had no effect, and you know why people still expect one percent real GDP growth in the US or you know, we're only now more recently talking about recessionary type characteristics in Germany. Um, and so therefore it's, it's, it's quite difficult. And I think the central banks actually have more work to do on the upside, not on the downside. And rates actually are still biased on the upward because, you know, I think everybody is trying to call the peak in rates. But as long as this data persists and we see this monthly, um, it becomes very, very difficult for central so, banks to take the foot off the pedal. Yeah, so recent rate moves must have been quite gratifying for you because the rate markets have been absolutely whacked in the last few, month or so. Yeah, look, I, we still think it's actually still biased upwards. Um, I still think it's biased upwards. And, uh, you know, you still have to see. Now, obviously, Harry, it's going to work. Uh, don't get me wrong. This is going to work at some point, I think. You know, I will come back to it in a second. I mean, you know, when we when we expect what's going to happen to corporate coverage ratios, over the next three to four years and what's going to happen to household coverage ratios, then we're obviously going to have some level of effect, um, but it's going to take some time. And we are still in this sweet spot for um, particularly for European banks, whereby the rate curve is still biased upward and we're not getting, um, we're not getting any, anything on the cost of risk. But I suppose that's really, really important though for us just as a firm to try to understand why because we can always, we don't want to be a reactionary, try to think six, nine, 12, sure. 18 months forward and just say, look, actually, where do we think rates peak? And certainly we think they're still higher um, than where we are today. Um, but the, and the factors that influence that decision are still telling us that we're going higher. So where do you think rates peak? Oh, that's an exceptionally difficult question. Um, you know, like, we know it's going to work at some point. And I suppose one of the things I should say, actually, Harry, which is actually an important consideration as well, is that we're assuming that it works um, because central banks actually won't go down without a fight. And the reason why I mentioned that is because I know we, we might come on to it in a while, is because obviously politics is becoming an increasingly important consideration when we think about where rates can peak. Because um, once the rate curve begins to have an effect and we do get start to get recessionary type characteristics, um, once these discretionary spending power metrics start to slow down, once coverage ratios start to come down, then will politics become more important? We hope not. And we do think that the central banks won't go down without a fight. But, you know, certainly we could still see, you know, in Europe, is it impossible to see, you know, another 100 uh, 200 basis points, maybe even more of rates relative to where we are today. And I think the market is basically expecting rates to fall into 2024. Um, we think that's highly improbable, highly, highly improbable once the central banks begin to understand the narrative of the fact that there is this excess demand still exists and we still haven't had an adjustment in coverage ratios. Let's not forget, Harry, I mean, even for interest to flow through the economy does take a long, long time because 
you know, for example, you know, you have a fixed rate mortgage in, in Europe and Germany for 20 years. You only reset once every 20 years. You're, you're still paying, you're still you're completely insensitive to the rate curve. Um, so, I mean, this does take a while to flow through. One of the countries actually where we believe rates actually could be significantly and have been, you know, quite bearish is actually the UK. Um, right. we, we think the UK is actually a bit of a unique situation. Um, we haven't been long UK banks. Um, UK banks, we feel, are a bit of a value trap because we feel um, the UK actually has uh, has a lot more work to do than Europe and the US on the upside. Oh, I see. Unique in a bad way, not in a good way. Um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to call it. I, let's not call it a bad way. Let's just call it a. Let's call it. They have. If they if they want to sort it out, they have to go higher and. Um, I suppose when I say sorted out, what do I mean by that? I mean, I suppose the UK, you know, in a post-Brexit world, um, uh, without getting into the politics of that, feels, you know, you know, it, it, I suppose it, we've had four or five crises over the last kind of like 30, 40 years in the UK. We've analysed these in detail and every in each crisis to kind of solve the issue, basically, and get the UK back into a trajectory where we have real GDP per capita on a growth basis. Um, it has had to adjust its rates to such an extent that it trades at about a two to three hundred basis points premium to the US in real terms. Um, if we were to do that today, if we were to do that today, that tells us the UK rates probably should be or somewhere in the order. I mean, I think last year when we, back last summer, we said, uh, you don't laugh, um, but when the Bank of England was calling peak rates at four, I think we were saying rates probably have to go to seven or eight at that time. Um, and we couldn't understand the UK decision. Now, if we put in a 2% premium to the US, we're probably looking at somewhere between 10 and 11. I mean, the big issue for the UK is basically the UK has been going through an era of overspending on the consumer side for a significant period of time. And even if you look at the gross savings ratio in the UK, Harry, today, the gross savings ratio in the UK is probably double what it was pre-COVID. So therefore, the, the excess demand that exists in the UK is actually pretty phenomenal. Now, obviously, that kind of that seems to contradict the, the, the traditional narrative um, that the UK is in terrible shape. But actually, the UK actually is in UK economy is actually doing pretty okay, and that's why we're getting revisions up now. Um, so that's I suppose when we think about the rate curve, that's how we think about it, and we kind of look. We look at this monthly data, and it keeps telling us that actually rates have to keep going up. And, and I think this is the, the, what it helps us to do, Harry. It helps us to understand a narrative around it, which we hear every day about peak rates and when is it going to have an effect. But when you put all those factors together, you can see very clearly, actually, it's pretty sensible why rates would be ineffective if you have this excess demand still existing in terms of discretionary spending and you have um, you know, coverage ratios that have been exceptionally high coming into the cycle. So, does that, for me, politically, the, the, the place where it's politically most sensitive to raise interest rates in the G10 is probably the UK because yeah. of floating index basis for real estate and because, you know, everybody who's anybody is long up the yin yangs of UK property in the, in the UK. Yeah. So, yeah. That, if I were to be biased, I'd take the under. On where UK rates end up, not be, not relative to your to your estimate, not because you're wrong, but because if anywhere is going to have political pressure to do more through fiscal and less through rates, it's going to be the UK. 
Yeah, I suppose, look, you, you could be right. I mean, ultimately, how does it end up? I mean, it ends up either in the currency market or in the, inter in the rate market, yeah. Right. Um, so, I mean, if we do undershoot, if we do undershoot on rates, then obviously we probably end up in the currency markets uh, in terms of a weaker GBP. Um, I mean, for us, uh, you know, you still haven't had that adjustment in the UK. I mean, I think if, if uh, Gabrielle wouldn't mind put up, there's a chart where we have of, we make an estimate basically of salary to monthly mortgage repayment in the UK of where we are today over the last kind of like 30 years, 25, 30 years. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a little bit dated now, but that number today is probably closer to 24, 25% for a new buyer. Um, you know, so therefore that a new buyer is basically roughly spending 25% of their income today if they were to go and buy a home in the UK. Um, this is harder than the GFC, but we haven't had that adjustment in house prices yet in the UK. Um, are we going to have that adjustment in house prices in the UK? We would think so. We would hope so. And we actually think it would be an important thing that we do get that adjustment in the UK. If we don't get adjustment in the UK, then we're, you know, entering into a different conversation. Um, and uh, we have this phrase internally, um, uh, which is not meant to be funny. It's actually quite serious. Um, is that hopefully we don't all end up going Turkey. Um, uh, because, you mean Erdogan policy, the Erdogan, Erdogan policy mix. Ex ex exactly, right. where, where we just keep rates too low. And I mean, and like the worrying thing, I suppose, really, when you see it, and, you know, this is why I suppose we're quite, you know, we still think that obviously politics is going to interrupt, but the, one of the key tenets of this is that we don't think central banks go down without a fight. And so even though we have had intervention in the UK more recently with uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt, saying basically that uh, you know banks need to pass on you know more deposit rates to their customers they should limit repossessions of homes for 12 months i mean you know it's it's quite unhelpful i would think to the implementation of monetary policy and it would give greater credence to your argument basically that you know we could end up lower than what we should have end up but obviously if we end up lower than what we should end up that's not a positive outcome for for, um, for sterling, for sterling, for you know the we the 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 you know, uh, you know the less well-paid elements of, of of the workforce will obviously suffer significantly, and therefore we have higher inflation for longer, um, because you still will not eliminate that excess demand. And so, look, I mean, we obviously there's always a choice to make, but I suppose one of the big things here is look, central banks will not go down without a fight, and if central banks do not go down without a fight, then we're going higher, Harry. Um, we're going much, much higher than what people think, because again, I keep reiterating discretionary spending power in the UK, in Europe, in emerging markets, in the US is much, much higher than what the market appreciates with essential item inflation slowing, wage growth strong, and we enter into this with coverage ratios that are too high. Um, on terms of interest coverage ratios. So look, if we do get that adjustment in the UK, like, I mean, we run the scenarios for some of the, you know, there's some, you know, some listed REIT companies in the UK, Harry. Um, if we were to, you know, housing office transactions in the UK are declining quite precipitously because just the bid offer spread is widening quite sure. significantly. We see something similar happening in the residential market, to be honest. Um, but if we were to kind of put through kind of like, you know, where relative to, you know, 18 months ago, 18 months ago and today, how what is the bid offer? What is the bid ask spread differential that we should have in a in a in a in a commercial property in the UK? And we think commercial property prices, which are down probably 10 to 15, or probably should be down on today's rates, probably should be down close to 50. 
which is a lot uh, closer to the marks you see using closed-end investment trust valuations. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's that's today's rates, Harry. Right. Oh dear. Yeah. Yeah. Oh dear. Exactly. Exactly. So you put that into the residential market. Now, obviously, if we do get that happen, I mean, I think you know, obviously, it's going to be pretty painful from a financial markets perspective, but it's actually very positive for the UK over the medium to long term. Um, and that's what generally happened. It happened in the 70s, it happened in the 80s, it happened in the 90s in the UK, where they actually took those tough policy decisions. Um, and again, we're back into this question today of whether we do have, you know, the, the, you know, the, um, the gumption to actually do this this time around. We, we think that the central banks will, won't go down without a fight. That's the key thing. I mean, what happens after that fight is a different question. Maybe we'll come back to that another time. Um, but we won't yeah. go down without a fight. Well, a lot of it is about political burden sharing. Um, sure. Whether it should be property owners who get take the whack, whether it should be businesses, whether it should be renters. Right now, obviously, I'm, I'm British. I'm, I'm I've got I've got a lot of contacts in London. My brothers and sister, my brother and sister, still live in London. Um, and what they tell me is that rents are absolutely screaming. Um, it's a, it's yeah. a distress situation for renters. And it's, yes. it's going to cause political problems because what you've got looks a little bit like uh, an intergenerational transfer where younger, more indebted uh, people are paying up through the nose and older, property-rich people are benefiting. This is yes. going to cause longer-term political stress there. Same as in the US, frankly. In the US, you've yep. got monetary policy being pushed by a Fed higher and as you, you pointed out, not everybody pays those rates. Quite a few yeah. of us, 30%, I think, roughly, of the US mortgage market is 30-year fixed. Um, yeah. They haven't noticed. They haven't noticed, yeah. So therefore, we are relatively insensitive. And mm. I suppose that's the big, with discretionary spending, with fiscal policy, et cetera, et cetera. But then when we think about that, Harry, then when we come on to it, and we're like, I mean, we look at, like, there are going to be implications across this. I mean, we mentioned the UK. Um, has been a little bit more vulnerable. Um, you know, the other country that looks quite vulnerable in terms of what we think about when we think about the banks and the investments that we would make or, you know, payment companies or the REITs, we would think, you know, France looks vulnerable. Why? Because, you know, French household debt over the last decade, you know, if, if uh, Gabrielle wouldn't mind putting up the percentage change in household debt for, for France across Europe, um, and also the, the corporate debt numbers, you'll see that French debt is up kind of like 80, 90% over the last, just over the last decade. In the following chart, you'd see corporate debt basically has gone from roughly 100% of GDP 20 years ago to about 160% of GDP today. Um, and so, you know, even though I might've shown you Germany coming in at 28 times coverage uh, in, in, in terms of its corporate debt ratios, France comes in at six. Um, so therefore, as we move forward, you know, the French numbers, for example, are going to have an effect. So if you look there, France comes in during the last crisis, it was three times. Um, you know, we're now at six. Germany's at 29. Profitability is roughly half um, in France, corporate profitability relative to what it is in Germany and on a, on a total basis. Debt is double what it is in Germany. Um, and so therefore you put those things together and you get to go from six. Now, if rates go plus 500 basis points from when they start to rise, you know, the, the average interest coverage ratio is going to fall to 1.6. That's a pretty big number. That's a pretty big decline. I mean, that's lower than any period over the last 25 years. Um, so is that call, going to cause some stress in the system? Um, I suspect it is because let's not forget, as we've transgressed 
through this period of rising rates, we've had issues. We've obviously had issues in the US financial system, banking system. We've had issues with credit suites. We've had issues in the UK. Um, is there going to be more issues? Yes, there are going to be more issues as we adjust. Um, so, you know, that's the other thing we have to be careful on. But during, I suppose, the, coming back to the to the idea then, you know, is that actually one of the other countries actually that we feel is going to have a problem is Brazil, actually, if rates persist here as well. But we can come back to that to another time. Yeah, let's, let's, oh, when you can, let's, let's touch on the Brazil. It fascinates me. Um, yeah. So the, narrative, so the narrative in Brazil basically is quite straightforward. So again, Brazil made the choice. So we had, you know, we had riot, you know, let's call it pro protests in the street in Brazil um, in 2014 ahead of the election, um, and oh, between 2014 and 2021, total economy debt in Brazil grew by roughly 50 to 60 percentage points of GDP. Um, interest rates at the time in 20, peaked in 2015. And between 2015 and 2021, rates fell precipitously, you know, basically from about 15 all the way down to one to two in Brazil. I mean, it was an amazing time as debt grew. So therefore, you had a situation where interest coverage ratios, again, you know, you know, rose really, really sharply. And but what was really, really important about Brazil at that time is that if you look at you know real GDP per capita in Brazil between 2000, last crisis 2014, that it rose every single year. Um, but but since they entered into this policy of aggressive debt creation, um, then we have had no real GDP per capita growth in Brazil. Um, in, fact, in fact, it's actually declined. So therefore, you had this excessive debt creation with no productivity growth, and that is really a recipe. Um, that is a recipe for a disaster, basically, uh, once it comes. Um, if Gabrielle can put up the chart, we have a, just a, a brief. And how does it actually flow through? It's just a, a debt analysis by sector in Brazil. So you'd see the total economy debt is roughly around 172% of GDP today. But front book rates are well above the back book rates across all the various segments. And the debt, one of the things about Brazil, actually, that makes it quite interesting is that the duration of the debt is quite short. So unlike the UK, where government debt has a duration of, let's say, 12 to 15 years, or in France, it's seven years. Most of Europe, about seven to eight years. Brazil is actually four. Yeah. So, oh, so, that's, uh, that's lengthened since I last checked. It was free last time I checked. Yeah. <laughs> but it, like a short duration, this is short duration at 171% of GDP in terms of total economy, government at 84 and so therefore, when the front book, as we call it, the front book rate, i.e. what they're funding at today, flows into the back book rate, which will happen over time because the governments will have to fund at a higher sure. rate, then you kind of get over the next three to four years, you get basically, you know, you're kind of, you know, the extra funding required as a share of GDP is roughly two and a half percent, you know, in one year. And over four years, you need to knock basically 9.6 percent off your GDP in terms of the higher interest bill. And that's actually quite a big number. And actually, I didn't put it here today, Harry, I didn't show the chart. But if you were to look at the household debt service ratios in Brazil, I mean, they're um, they're going through the roof. Now, we haven't had a, a cycle yet, but again, we're having a similar narrative in Brazil as we are in other countries in terms of now governments are becoming increasingly involved in trying to preserve household cash flow. So they're talking about cap on credit card rates. They're talking about... Credit card know, rates are punitive in Brazil. Yes. It's, a, it's such an amazing way of making money. 
Yes. Uh, if you're Brazilian credit card companies, is my favorite. <laughs> if, I, if I come back, I'll come back as a Brazilian credit card company. Yeah, they have they have been pretty terrible now in terms of um, in terms of investments over the last little period. Um, but uh, you know, we think this is the reason actually that we are going to have. Or now, are we going to have an NPL cycle in Brazil, a significant NPL cycle in Brazil, non-performing loan cycle? Um, you know. Th- the risk is yes, we are, but obviously if the government intervenes and caps credit card rates or caps other kind of rates or decides to give more money to households, um, you know, then we probably won't be having a credit card cycle uh, that we would expect that we should have. But again, you know, what actually, how does this flow through? We can't, not everybody can be a winner. Um, yes, it's you know, the burden sharing question again rears its head. Yes, and the government yes. can intervene, putting a finger on the scale to decide who it is that pays that bill. Yeah, so therefore, I mean, you know, some of the interesting events, what, what, what should you do with Brazilian, with Brazilian banks in USD? Um, you know, are we going to have a credit card cycle or credit cycle or not? Or if we don't have a credit cycle, are we going to have an issue in relation to the USD BRL rate? But that, this flows through, I suppose, this narrative is something similar that we see in the UK. Again, we think rates should be biased upward, not downward, even though they're talking about cutting rates in the next cycle. But like when we come up with, I know we've skirted around a lot about rates over the last little while, Harry, but when, when we come on to it, then we kind of say, okay, where do, how do we make money? Yeah. How do we make money here? Always. <laughs> so it's not it's not obviously not easy um but what we try to do is look try to understand if we i suppose what we try to do is try to understand like what is the environment in which these companies operate yeah what are the factors that influence the outcomes and so therefore then when we speak with the banks or the payment companies or the REITs or you know the diversified financial the asset management firms in europe we have some understanding of how we think if we can mirror what they tell us versus what we see from our data, then we can kind of have a, you know, an interesting conversation about, you know, potential investments. And look, we've been exceptionally bullish on European banks for the last 12 months. I mean, the stocks stocks have done well, but they haven't actually re-rated from a, an earnings perspective. I mean, it, it, they've really gone up because the earnings have gone up. Um, and really, you know, interest rates in Europe, as we said, have been low. So if we think about the factors that are going to influence the banks, um, and we, you know, you're going to say, well, obviously, interest rates going up is a positive. I mean, as we mentioned, the amount of interest paid in Spain was 55 billion in 2008. It's 15 billion today. I mean, banks are in the process. What do banks do? Banks basically earn money on a customer spread where they charge you for your loan. If the loan rate is higher, they have a greater opportunity to make more money on that loan. Sure. So obviously that's that's one thing. I mean, we look at German front book corporate rates are up 350 basis points. Uh, so if you want a loan in Germany today, you're paying 350 basis points more. Uh, so that's more positive for the banks, assuming they can manage their risk. One of the, but a couple of other things are really, really important actually as well for the European bank narrative is that it's not only a rate call here. I mean, that's the easy thing to do. Um, The thing that's really, really important, I feel, is actually that people are misunderstanding the fact that banks have been disintermediated for a decade. Um, And what do I mean by that? I mean, look, I mean, we use Spain quite often in our analysis here in terms of we look at Spain. I mean, corporate debt in Spain is roughly flat over the last 12 to 14 years since 2008, it peaked at about 1.3 trillion. Um, it's 1.3 trillion today. Um, but over that period, over that period, um, the bank's share of that credit has gone from roughly 65 to 70% share to about 30 to 40% share. So the banks have actually lost an enormous amount of market share to the bond market, the private credit markets, and to 
you know, other players um, over that period. And so, you know, that's really, really important when we think about the other element that influences the bank, basically, which is, are they going to have an issue as, as corporate coverage ratios converge to normality over the next three to four years? And as we do get this push on rates and we do get the coverage ratios converge, how bad will it be for the corporate credit cycle? And on the basis of the banks have lost market share for a decade, we just wonder, you know, who has these loans now? Because it's not only the banks. It's not only the banks. It's actually other players who may not have been as good underwriters as the banks have been uh, over the last couple of decades. The other thing that's really important, Harry, as well. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was uh, just, just thinking about, for some reason, private equity popped into my head. Um, but you already said you didn't like private equity. Well, I think, well, when we think about private equity um, is actually, let's just focus on private credit. I mean, watching, sure. watching, some, watching some of the, the proponents for private credit. I mean, obviously, the, 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 the proponent of the proposition is that this has never been a better time to write a loan because now I can get, you know, I can now, I can now get a loan for six, seven, eight percent, basically on the, on my, what we call the front book, i.e. on a new loan. The problem is, what about your back book? <laughs> so what about the firms who are refinancing? Um, so we actually use the narrative. If we were, if we can split the German data basically into, you know, what the banks funded at and what the non-banks funded at. So the banks funded at the, at the trough, at the, sorry, at peak coverage, the banks basically gave um, gave loans of roughly around two percent to a corporate, uh, twenty eight times interest coverage. Um, the non bank sector, private credit, bond market, funded at one, at twenty eight times interest coverage. If we're right, and rates have well, even if rates that interest coverage ratio today are somewhere in two years' time is when these guys come to refinance is going to be somewhere between four and six times. So will they be able to refinance at 1%? Highly unlikely, highly, highly unlikely. That's called. Yeah, it. we're hearing uh, some interesting anecdotes out of Germany, for example, on real estate lending. And yeah. there is a fair amount of, I'd call it pseudo distress, where people yeah. need to finance, uh, find bridge loans, can't find, out, find it out on normal terms. So they yeah. go to, uh, uh, specialist lenders who offer them rates of 15 to 20 percent and yeah. they balk at those shop around and come back and yeah. it's the coming back that i find fascinating i can yeah. understand rejecting 15 i can't understand paying it and no, but, but again I, I suppose the thing is look obviously we have distress in the commercial real estate market in europe that's obviously pretty absolutely evident. Yeah. that's evident but look i suppose that it reminds me of what happened in 07 in terms of when we did have the the bear stearns hedge fund issue in march 07 sure. it really was about 12 to 18 months before the full effects flew through, through great point became, such, a, such a good point Absolutely. And, and like, and so I also, we always focus again on the most vulnerable, but this is going to affect everybody. This is just not unique to, um, to the commercial real estate sector. This will be all corporates will have much, much higher refinancings in terms of what they have to pay. Um, and the issue from, a, from the bank's perspective, obviously the bank, that's an opportunity for the banks to some extent in terms of regaining market share where they've lost market share for a decade but the second thing actually um if gabrielle wouldn't mind putting up 
um, there's a chart where we use where we you know the 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 funding spread between the domestic banks and other. And I think this is really, really interesting in terms of the bullish case for the banks, because, you know, we obviously the rates are important, but the banks have actually also lost their pricing power over the last decade. And what does this chart show? This chart basically shows is, so banks, you have, a, if you want to go to a bank, Harry, um, you generally have stability in your funding. I mean, they're there for you, generally there for you. They're not, you know, they won't default on you unless it's absolutely, you know, uh, generally it's, it's, you know, there's a process you go through. The bond market sure. is obviously more volatile in terms of it's a willingness to fund at a specific rate. Um, the banks, so the banks basically have lost their, their pricing power over the last decade. And so if you think back, back pre GFC banks used premium for bank funding was running at around, let's call it 200 to 250 basis points that corporates were willing to pay. So not only have corporates lost, have banks lost market share, but also their pricing power was limited over a decade. And so are we entering an environment today, we think we are, um, that people will now, where bank for stability of funding will become increasingly important in terms of its ability to access funding. And we think, yes, the banks are going to be able to have that funding and will corporates be willing to access the banks back to the banks? And we think people will. So therefore, even though loan growth is obviously going to slow balance sheets by contract, but the pricing power of the banks, if you think about an industry, what do you want in an industry? You want to be an industry involved sure. in an industry with pricing power. Pricing power is much more important than volume to some extent. Uh, hell yeah. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, so if the banks can regain pricing power, then this becomes a very, 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 very strong story. And the other thing, clearly, which we should, if, if, if Gabrielle also wouldn't mind, just in terms of European banks, is, you know, the loans to the deposits ratio of the domestic private sector. Um, and this is actually really, really important as well, because, you know, the banks do have significant amounts of excess liquidity. So this is just, this is Italy, for example, this is the loans to the deposits ratio in Italy which has gone from, so Italian, I mentioned, you know, Italian corporate credit basically is again, flat over, for over a decade, deposits have grown quite strongly, which means, you know, again, households have a lot of excess net worth creation. Um, but, you know, banks are very, very liquid now. Um, and, you know, this is apart from the French banks, uh, you know, this area is, uh, you know, this is, you know, a theme across all of Europe where the loans to deposits ratio is basically are very, very low. Can I interrupt you briefly? If, sure. Just hold that thought. Why is France an outlier? What happened? It looks like they expanded credit provisions significantly somehow. Well, I suppose, well, French corporate credit, as I mentioned earlier, has doubled in, you know, French corporate credit has, you know, gone from 100% of GDP back in pre-GFC to 160 today. Corporate credit has doubled in a decade. Corporate, uh, sorry, household credit has doubled in a decade and corporate credit has doubled in a decade. Um, and that isn't, that isn't obvious. German credit is up, but not as significantly. Um, so therefore French, the French have basically run a more levered model. And I, you can even see that somewhat a little bit in the, in the, in the differential. I mean, we are, you know, obviously I'm sure you've had people on speaking quite significantly about the differential between French and uh, between German and Italian credit spreads, which is, you know, a key parameter for stress in the Eurozone. I mean, one of our worries to some extent is that we're now seeing a widening of the credit spread between France and Germany. Um, you know, and I mean, if you think about somebody, a, a country that's taken on a significant amount of debt, um, just as rates have accelerated higher, then, you know, probably, you know, I, I don't want to say it yet, but 
you know, uh, you know, is France potentially the weaker element of the Eurozone? Potentially is what's happening in France. These social issues that are happening in France today may be uh, symptomatic of what, you know, a deeper issue that are related somewhat to the excessive debt creation over the last decade than, you know, potentially. I mean, you know, all these things kind of intertwine to some extent, but you know, like I suppose France, but all, all the other regions, basically, when we think about the banks in Europe, you know, they're liquid, they might have pricing power back, they mightn't have all the credit losses this cycle because they've lost market share for a decade. Um, they obviously will benefit from a widening customer spread. Um, and so therefore you're entering into an environment where, you know, you know, the, they're much higher capital ratios and you're kind of saying, well, I mean, you know, if, if we're, I didn't show you ratings in some of these stocks, but these stocks are trading at, you know, distressed valuations on a price to earnings or price to pre-provision basis, um, you know, four times earnings with 10 to 12% dividend yields with, you know, earnings potentially biased upwards. Um, so it seems rich, seems good. Which are the, so which regions in Europe have the cheapest banks? Um, we, we've tried to we've tried to focus on banks basically that have a high level of sensitivity to net interest income where there has been limited credit creation over the last decade sure that's really really important mm -hmm. um, because if you haven't created much credit then obviously you're going to be less sensitive to a rising rate cycle right. um, so the focus for us has actually been on the banks that were in the crisis in during the last gfc which is the italian banks the spanish banks the irish banks um, and, and, you know, maybe one or two select banks in the Benelux and Germany. Um, but in general, we've tended to avoid banks, um, in France, in the UK, um, Eastern Europe to some extent, because again, policy is a little bit more difficult there, but just focus on banks where there are, you know, that have these characteristics, low loans to deposits ratios, no credit growth. So therefore we just get the full benefit of the rate curve. Um, and, you know, ideally banks to do buybacks. So right. the other thing that's interesting, Harry, is that, you know, even if rates do, you know, we don't expect rates to fall, but even if they do, banks still do okay in that cycle for a period. So sure. you know, at, at, at this, at these values, I mean, we're pricing in a very, exceptionally bearish scenario and the way we think about that in terms of because the banks have lost market share for a decade you have these high coverage ratios you don't get cost of risk or you know poor provisions for a period um, but the offset of that actually is you know just in terms of the you know the private equity asset management sectors are going to have a lot of challenges in the coming period and you know why is that um it's a couple of reasons one is does a mix effect flowing through in terms of you know, as bond yields keep pushing higher, I mean, ultimately, you know, bond funds are going to become more attractive um, because they're, they'll be paying five to six um, versus an equity that's volatile. Um, you know, if bonds are paying five to six, you know, you, you know, your equity could become more difficult. So therefore you have a mix effect whereby, you know, the, the margins that these firms earn on their equity product is a significant premium to the margin they are which is kind of like five to 10 basis points basically on a bond product versus somewhere up to 60 to 70 on an equity product. So you have a negative mix effect. You have household cash flow normalizing eventually once, we, once this rate cycle progresses. So therefore the flow into asset management will be weak. Um, and then you have 
um, I suppose, you know, many of these firms would have been overly aggressive in their cost basis over the last kind of like several years. So you get in a, potentially an environment where you have revenue falling and, you know, you have an inflexible cost base. I mean, asset management firms in general are not great at, uh, at uh, rationalization. Um, um, and so, you know, you, you, it becomes a very, very interesting period. I mean, like and one of the things we find about, like, even you can see it if, if Gabrielle wouldn't mind just putting up the couple of charts that we have on, on private equity towards the back end um, of, uh, you know, um, we have basically where, you know, you know, obviously private equity. Um, I mean, even in the UK, they're talking about allocations to private equity, but, you know, private equity allocations basically were gradually moving upward, you know, from 15 to 21. Then we got this acceleration during COVID where, you know, everybody had to get into private equity. But that was just precisely at the time when rate curves were low. Um, but all these things refinance in four years time from 1% rates at four to 4 to 5% rates or 7, 8 or 10% rates, we're not sure. Um, so will will private equity give you the type of return that one expects over the next several years? And we we suspect not. And in the following charts, we'll show you what's happening. Something similar to what's happening we mentioned earlier with commercial real estate transactions in the UK. If you look at private equity deal counts, if you look at the U European deal counts, like these things are falling precipitously. I mean, we're back to already. We're back at you know, 2008 levels in terms of you know, by, by value. But yeah. these deal, these deals were all done a lot of these deals were done at 28 times interest coverage at 1% rates back in Q1 sure. 2022 and prior. Now we have to refinance at 10. And, and like I suppose, but then we, we know this is coming, Harry. Yeah, I, I suppose that's from our perspective, we know this is coming. And you asked the question, when does it happen? I mean, obviously we all want to know when does this actually happen? That's exceptionally difficult. We just keep focusing on the data. If we keep focusing on the data, hopefully the data and we keep trying to look forward will tell us when we're beginning to see the stress. We obviously talked to the companies, they're not seeing it yet. Um, the data is telling us it's not yet. And if those conditions still exist, if those conditions still exist, the, the banks are telling us not yet, our data is telling us not yet, the discretionary spending is going up, the co coverage ratio is still too high, we still have higher rates, we still have sure. work to do on the upside. And in that environment, not yet. Right. Not yet. We still got it. So, you know, that's why we've been exceptionally bullish on European banks for a period. We're still bullish on European banks, ideally periphery. Um, and, uh, you know, we feel that the asset management sector is going to be very, very challenged. We got a couple of quite interesting questions from the audience. Um, yeah. So Joseph um, asks, Given demographics have not improved in the EU or the US and AI will take some time to improve productivity, do you see financial repression returning after the excess savings burn off and base effects on wages stabilize? Or do you see an enduring wage, you know, upward wage pressure for years? Well, I suppose the financial repression question is probably one of the most important questions one can, one can ask. I mean, in terms of ultimately where do we end up? Because obviously if we do get financial repression in terms of the government's choosing, I mean, there was a period um, after World War II in France whereby they directed where the banks lent. Yeah. Um, so they determined policy, basically determined monetary policy between 1945, I think, it did, you know, about 1968, into the early 70s um, whereby the the government dictated policy um, and that is what financial repression is so will you be dictated will 
will we will we be dictated to buy government bonds ultimately um, to preserve the nominal uh, the, the perception of uh, of um, will we be to the perception that everything is okay um, and again I suppose my 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 answer to that is I come back to the fact that central banks won't go down without a fight so I think financial repression comes after we have had that fight. Um, where, where, right. and, but, and the only question then that's important is at what level of rates do we have that fight? Um, we think it's higher, um, but it's yeah, coming. I, and I, like once we get, the, we'll, we'll know when the fight starts. Let me put it like that. Then obviously has different implications for gold and various other things because then we're, you know, we're uh, we're in a different environment of financial repression. Um, we don't see it yet. I see some signs that the fight has already started, but it's certainly not. It's not a hot war. Yeah, it's and I, I say that because the Fed's there hiking rates, for example, but U.S. Uh, the U.S. fiscal deficit is eight percent. So yeah. if they had any control over the fiscal situation, they wouldn't necessarily have to raise rates as much. Clearly, they yeah. don't. They're not pull, the U.S. government and the Fed are pulling in different directions. Yeah. Um, Paul also has a question. Um, it's a good one, actually. What What is the most important difference between European and U.S. banks that leads that will give you Euro European bank outperformance? Why do you get European bank outperformance? I suppose there's a couple of questions. One is um, Europe had a crisis in between 2009 and 2000 and 12, 13, um, whereby in particular exposure to certain sectors fell. So commercial real estate exposure, for example, in the US regionals is roughly 30 to 35% of total loans. In Europe, five to eight, five to eight, right. significantly lower. Um, second thing is uh, the European banks, that, so that's on the cost of, let's call that a cost of risk issue. Yeah. Secondly is the credit growth in Europe has been an awful lot lower, similarly related to the cost of risk issue. The other issue that's really, really important is around uh, deposit betas, uh, what we call deposit betas in Europe versus the US. So um, like the US saver seems to be a lot more sensitive to the rate curve in terms of their willingness to move. So obviously we have money yes, market. Yes, I am. I'm already in T-bills. It's yes. just a ridiculous thing yeah. to receive the yeah. deposit rates they offer you and have their default, the risk on deposits. So. Yeah, and so so like that that is less of an issue in Europe. Now, not that's not to say it isn't an issue in Europe. It is an issue in Europe. For example, more recently we're seeing, I think there's been roughly year to date roughly about fifty to sixty billion flow into BTPs in Italy, for example, which are yielding four to five, yeah. versus the depositors and yeah. the uni, you know, Unicredit and Tesa paying basically close to you know sure. limited, limited, limited. Let's just call it limited. Um, so, but. Because we don't have the same level of, uh, I suppose, homogeneity, you know, the, this this easy transferability from deposits into T-bills, and I suppose maybe it's because we're less financially astute in Europe um, versus the US with not as deep uh, kind of a money market uh, sure. money market funds, then you don't get the same level of of deposit pressure as you do in the US. And so therefore deposit beaters in the US have actually been really, really high. Deposit beaters in Europe have actually been really, really low. So, you know, like we can look at, you know, somewhere like Ireland, Slovenia, you know, Portugal, where, you know, even though the ECB has moved by close to 400 basis points already, um, you know, they have passed through probably, you know, 20, 30 basis points of that move. 
um, even though you know. So you 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 get you get that issue. The other big th thing about the European banks basically is that you know over the last decade they've been subject to significant regulation, such that capital ratios have improved significantly. And the U.S. banks, even though they obviously they had good stress tests, the European banks are now entering a period where you know on higher earnings that they are now doing significant buybacks. Um, they're buying back their stocks, their their stock basically at four times earnings. So I can I can buy some banks in Europe with you know ten to twelve yields. Um, I'm happy in terms of my earnings outlook for the next several years, um, but they're buying back stock at four times. I mean. So, that I mean gives, I yeah. mean, it's just, it's just very, it's, it, it looks like it's, it, it's, it's a strong tailwind. It's a strong tailwind, basically. So if you have more buyers and sellers. So we're running really short of time, but I really wanted to touch on this point, yeah. um, which is, you know, the environment, what you've described with upward pressure on rates sounds like a dreadful environment for US regionals because they haven't really been rescued by the Fed. They've just had this problem pushed back into the future. Um, yeah. So it seems to me that U.S. money centers have the advantage of being able to feast on the carcasses of U.S. regionals, um, buying their assets up cheap when they get put to sleep. Um, yeah. the, am, I, am I wrong to look at it that way? Is that not? Uh, yeah. No, well, we we don't cover the U.S. We obviously keep an eye on the U.S. because it's obviously an important market. We don't cover the U.S. specifically, but clearly, um, you know, I, I think you know it's a bit like, you know, we're going to get issues occurring as we push as we push on that you know we've been pushing on a string sometime that string some point that string will will bounce back rates yeah. can go high enough to hurt somebody we're just trying to, to figure somebody. out who. we're just trying who it is yeah exactly exactly and, and like and that's why i think we can't we can't uh, you know we can't be complacent enough to suggest and we're certainly not complacent enough to suggest that this isn't going to have an issue for Europe I mean it is clearly going to have an issue for Europe in terms of the cost of risk for European banks is going up is there going to be differences between the UK France and Ireland for example yes there will be would I prefer to be long you know or you know certain certain regions and the banks in those regions yes um, but you know we're we're going we're going to have kickbacks, Harry, and uh, you know the the issue is that the what's happened to date is that for every for everything that's happened, for example, whether it's the U.S. regionals that were the issues in the U.S. regions that we had, whether it's Credit Suisse, whether it's the LDI issue in the U.K., after each of those issues, everybody has rushed to call peak rates. Yes. Yes. But the issue, when when we look at the data, the data is still telling us it's not having an effect. So, yeah. and and a lot of these issues are happening outside the financial system. So, the Bank of England responded to the LDI issue, the U.S. government responded to the regional issue, the Swiss government responded to the Credit Suisse issue. But that isn't allowing us to have that reset, and so therefore we are still in this movement upward in rates. In an environment where we feel European banks, in particular, uh, look exceptionally strong. Seamus, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, we are pretty much out of time, but if people wanted to keep on top of your thinking, what can they do apart from from sign up for your service? Yeah, well, sign up. We have, we actually do some blog. There's a lot of blogs on our website. We do a lot of blogs on these issues on our website, uh, carrykill.com. So. Um, and uh, that's probably the easiest way. Um, we, I actually haven't done much media, Harry. Uh, would you believe I've been? Very I don't believe it. You were excellent. 
I, I've, I've been very secluded for the last kind of like period. We don't tend to, you know, we don't do much of this. Um, but uh, look, we're really happy to be uh, to be invited onto your show. So uh, um, hopefully we'll uh, we get another chance to speak in the future. I hope so too. Uh, do come back and thank you so much. That was wonderful. Yeah. Really you, appreciate Harry. this, dear. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN.